Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I'm very excited to be welcoming Rob Volpe to the podcast. Rob is the founder and CEO of Ignite360, an insights and strategy firm helping Fortune 500 companies better connect and understand their consumers. One could say that Rob's superpower is empathy, which is displayed in his new book, Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time. He discussed his years of experience conducting thousands of in-home interviews with everyday people and applying those experiences to ultimately create the five steps of empathy. Listeners, Rob's new book is one of my favorites this year, and we're lucky enough to be giving away two copies. Make sure you follow the podcast on Instagram to learn how to get your own copy, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited uh, to have this conversation with you. And as I was reading your book, tell me more about that, solving the empathy crisis, one conversation at a time. And listeners, don't worry, we're definitely going to dive into the book. What I loved was how you started to talk about your upbringing and you referred to it as your origin story. So for listeners who might not know, can you tell us what your origin story is? Yeah, my my well, first Mallory, hi. It's so awesome to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, and yeah, just delighted and excited to talk with you. Um, so yeah, my origin story. I grew up in a small town in Indiana. Um, and it, it things started out really well. I had a, a best friend who later came to find out as we both became adults, we were both gay. Um, so we had a blast role playing Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels, Bionic Woman, you name the the action heroines of the 70s, and we were doing it. And then my family moved to a smaller small town in Indiana that wasn't um, quite as open minded at the time as as the other place. And I started to bump into uh, what expectations were of what boys should be and and how people should behave. And it wasn't long after I started fifth grade, which is the year we moved to that town, that one of the kids decided to tell everybody that I was gay. And that caught on like wildfire. And this is 1980, small town, Indiana. So didn't really like way before Ellen, way before Will and Grace, like RuPaul, all of that. Like what's, what is gay? Uh, you know, and I had to ask my my mom, like, what is that? Why are, why are they saying that? And, and that stuck with me and, and, and followed me around. I mean, it was, yeah, gosh, I, that was in fifth grade. I didn't come out until I was 23, 24. So clearly, you know, it's not like I got caught making out behind the barn with somebody. Did that, I feel like that kid kind of stole your moment in a way, like you hadn't even figured out who you were and kids are, kids say horrible things. I experienced it when I was younger as well, but nothing where what they said shaped my identity or really like stuck to like who I became I don't know if I'm explaining that in the right way but I feel like he labeled or said something about you that you would have figured out along your journey but at some point but it was already in the back of your head somehow 
yeah and it was i i knew i was different from the other kids i just couldn't put my finger on what that was but i i didn't totally you know fit in 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 the one town where where my friend joey and i were role playing I was kind of like the other kids didn't really care and they didn't make a big deal out of it. And maybe it's because we were younger at that point, but then all of a sudden you get into, you know, fifth, sixth grade and then into junior high school. Oh, the worst time, the, the worst, worst, the worst time. Absolute worst. And, you know, and that's when kids start to figure out who they are and where they belong and, and sort and, and organize and, um, and, and, also, I think, you know, lash out because of their own injuries. And that's kind of what I came to realize many, many years later um, was that it had nothing to do with me. I was I was just the easy target. Um, but I think what you said where he he did steal something from me. I think that's true. Um, I would have ultimately come out like who I, I am a gay man. And I was back then as a youth. I just didn't have the words for it but it did mess with my head about how to be comfortable with myself and 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 really how to um behave around other people and modify my own behavior to make sure that I was fitting in that rumors weren't going to get started and you know that ultimately turned into a superpower and I was able to start to have empathy and use empathy to to help achieve that but it made me worry about things that I think most kids shouldn't have to worry about in their, in their childhood. The way you tell your story, first off, you are a beautiful, amazing storyteller. The way you like weave in your personal experiences with the actual text and marketing material in your book, it wasn't just another marketing leadership how you should do kind of book. It really combined beautifully your personal experiences and how that translates into everyday activities pretty much, or how you have built this career based off of really let's start in fifth grade. They weren't empathetic. You were on the other side of it. And I feel like when people go through certain things, I have a lot of empathy because of certain experiences I've gone through, but it's hard that you have to go through those experiences to get empathy. Yeah. You're not born with it necessarily. Right. Um, yeah. And we, we're, we're born with the ability to have empathy. Actually, it's like the muscles are there, but you've got to train the muscles. So the analogy I, I often use is, you know, kids are born, babies are born with the muscles that will let them walk at some point, but they need to be given the opportunities and the experiences to, um, you know, strengthen their muscles so that they can crawl and then stand and scoot, ultimately walk and run. And empathy is very similar to that. We have to be put into situations that we have to have the behavior modeled for us to understand how to respond, how to react, what it means to be empathetic and there's so many different things going on in society and have been for decades that have have hindered that training time that we get we don't get enough time practicing being empathetic and and therefore we're in kind of our current state today well one um study you really bring up in the book and that i've heard you speak about 
Another interview is the study of studies that came out of the University of Michigan in 2001 that showed 40%, yes, listeners, 40% decrease in empathy amongst college students. That is alarming to me because I would think in college is when you're supposed to be the most empathetic, the most understanding, the most quote unquote liberal and open. And there's a 40% decrease and it hasn't rebounded. Has not improved. And that was in 2001 when they identified the 40% decline. So I don't want to know where it's at now. Valerie, we're 20 years on with that. And and yeah, who knows where it is exactly. Um, And another sort of shocking statistic, a a study we did at my company, Ignite360, which is a research firm, we fielded a research study in January and it found nearly one third of American adults were unable to agree with that same statement that was posed to the college students of, am I able to easily see the point of view of somebody else? And to me, that's like a no-brainer. I'm a good person, member of society. Of course, I'm going to say, yes, I can see the point of view of other people. But one third said, no, they couldn't easily do that. And that to me is also those two things together. It's like, oh my gosh, we have such a problem in our society. Especially because you think those individuals are having kids and they're teaching their kids how you're always right or whatever it is. And I just, I cringed when I saw that number. It's like, it's like, okay. So I use the analogy. I've never, I've never drawn this connection before. So this will be a first, but let's go with it. Um, You know, I, I use the analogy of the baby learning how to walk and, and using those muscles. Well, imagine if we could, only walk, or we we were able to walk 40% less well as we we would otherwise. What would be happening? We'd be bumping into each other. We'd be falling over. We'd be tripping over ourselves because we couldn't stand up properly. And that's exactly what's happened with the decline in empathy. You see that in our society. We metaphorically are running into each other and colliding and, 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 you know, in the, uh, the arguments that we're having, not seeing each other's points of view, not getting to a place of compassion with people on the other side. Um, it's a it's a real problem. And, it, and it's because we're not given that opportunity to practice it early on. So there are two types of empathy, from my understanding. There's um, cognitive empathy and then emotional empathy. For listeners who maybe don't know the difference, can you explain them? Absolutely. So, um, Emotional empathy is the one that most people often think of when they they hear the word empathy, and it's the one that most people are afraid of too, because it's you know emotions, um, feelings, and ooh, that's icky, uncomfortable stuff. I don't know what to do with it. Emotional empathy, the analogy I use for that, it's like when we're living in a cave, and back in cave dwelling times. So imagine you're back in the cave, you might have emotional empathy with the people living in the cave with you, which are probably your family and your very closest friends, if there's other family units there or something. Cognitive empathy is about seeing the point of view of other people. So it's perspective taking. So emotions are feeling the emotions with someone else as they're feeling it. Cognitive empathy, the second form of empathy is seeing the point of view of somebody else. So it's it's also equal with language, but it's around perspective taking because you don't know that person well enough. You don't know their 
um, rituals, their, their values, their lifestyles, their behaviors completely to have emotional empathy, but you might be able to see where they're coming from and understand, okay, I get their point of view. Um, and that is what we really need to have a fun well-functioning society is being able to see each other's point of view. And it, it, it's useful in our day-to-day -day personal interactions as well as our professional interactions. So in your book, tell me more about that. You talk about there's like five different stages of empathy um, or five different components. And what I love, so I listened, I started reading it, then I moved to Audible and I was, I finished it in three days. I loved hearing you tell the stories. Um, there were some parts where I, I laughed out loud because of how you were telling the story and I was like, oh my gosh, I would be in your shoes too. And I was laughing to myself and you were just such a phenomenal storyteller. But what I love is that each story related back to some of the principles and that I was able to see, or I guess here, um, as you start to grow in your career, you were able to take a step back and really look at situations differently. You were able to realize, oh, I wasn't approaching this the right way. There's this one story where this gentleman keeps talking about his mother and referring to her as mother. And you go upstairs to go to the restroom and you see this like dummy. And all of a sudden you're like, am I in, you know, psycho and what's going on? And you're not even able to really pay attention to the product you're really asking him about because you get so in your head. And I'm very much like that as well. So I thought that was hilarious, but then you were able to say, I was putting judgment into the situation. I wasn't able to approach it in an empathetic way. Why did you feel the need to write this book? And I know it took you almost six years to do this, yeah, but yeah. what was the reasoning behind it? Because I feel like you could do a volume two with so many more stories. <laughs> yeah, the... Um... Yeah, thank you. I'm so uh, honored, touched, and pleased that you enjoyed it, the book so much. And and you're the first person who's finished the because Audible the version just came out, and so you're the, one of the first people I've heard from that that's listened to it. And I, I love that hearing that feedback. So thank you. Um, yeah. So why the book? You know, a like I recognized in 2010 when that study of studies came out about the 40% decline that okay, there's a big empathy crisis, and we started doing more at Ignite 360 um, to to help our clients connect empathetically with their consumers, and that became you know all of the stories from the book are from those kind of adventures and misadventures, and I. I was standing in front of a classroom giving a presentation. I talk about the industry and, and what my firm does. And then I, because I knew there's an empathy crisis and I need to do what I can to, to help fix that and bring awareness to it. I started presenting as a second part to that, those presentations, I would talk about empathy and tell some of my stories from the field. And the students were just hanging on my every word as I was, I, I, the story, the chapter is called Mother Would Never Do That. Um, and that story of Frank uh, is one that I've always told. And then Amelia um, and some of the, the adventures with her and those in-homes, and that's in the book. And the students were just like riveted. And I thought, you know, and, and this is like, 
don't know, since six, seven years ago. And I'm like, college students aren't supposed to be paying this much attention. Like they're really hanging on, on my every word. And a little voice inside me said, this is what you need to write about. These are the stories you need to tell. And for me, I've just always found that people, for whatever reason, people learn and respond to me better when I'm telling stories rather than me telling you should do this and you must do that. When I'm sharing my own personal experiences and my you know failures and successes, people learn from that. And additionally, what happens and what I've been hearing from people that have read the book is it, the the because the book's entertaining, you were laughing um, at certain points and, you know, moved in other other ways at other times, it sits into your brain a little differently. And so then what happened, what I'm hearing is happening is that when people get into situations, those stories start to come up and they're like, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm being judgmental. I'm being like he was in, in the book or, you know, one mom, um, told me, re, never met her before, reached out. She was having trouble with her son. He was 13 years old in English class. And she was about to just challenge him and go, well, why are you having problems in English? And just as she was about to ask that question, she thought about the book and chose instead to just say, well, tell me more about what's going on in English. And it changed the nature of his answer. He wasn't on the defensive and they had a much better positive conversation. Um, as a result, she was able to help him in a way that she never had before. So, so uh, yeah, I would say, so I think Audible told me it was going to be, I don't know, 11 or 12 hours, give or take. I finished it in three days. I remember I was walking, listening, you know, I can remember the story about the woman with the pancake and the mold where exactly where I was on what street corner in Chicago, because I just was standing there being like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I would do in this situation. Thinking about these stories, but more importantly, what you said is, all right, how do I approach conversations? How do I get more information? And as I've grown both personally and professionally, it's those open-ended questions where your judgment isn't coming through, or you're trying to mute that as quietly as you can. And I understand we're all human. It's not always right. going to work. There's sometimes we're talking to someone and I'm like, why would you wear that outfit? Like, what are you thinking now? That shouldn't be what's coming to my head, but you know, it is what it is. It's how do you push past that move right. that aside to still try to get to that blank slate where you can have an authentic conversation. Absolutely. You can see that person um, for who they are rather than being judgmental about a judgment decision they made on what to wear that day. And I think the best story in your book and listeners, just to let you know, uh, Rob has been so gracious. He's given me two books to give away and we'll post about that on Instagram but was the one individual, the woman who had two kids, not with husband, but with their fathers, you found out she was going through a divorce at 18 and the story just kept growing and you never, you didn't think it was going to go. And I'm paraphrasing this entire chapter, but I think it was just such a great example of don't make judgments because you, every time you're like, well, okay, that makes sense. And then you're like, but why this? And then she would answer a question. You're like, I did not see that answer coming. 
did not see that happening. And it just kind of kept going. But I think that's what makes you such a great marketer. And like you, I love to understand why people do what they do. Understanding what's going on in someone's brain. And you put it into words so beautifully. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, we just, we make assumptions about other people based on our own life or how we view the world. And that comes across as being judgmental and it blocks us. I mean, I have so many different analogies for judgment. It's a brick wall, it's noise canceling headsets. Um, But the point is that it gets in your way and it prevents you from seeing the other person and and hearing anything that they're going to tell you. And it also clouds the way that you're going to ask questions and even make sense of it in your own mind um, after you've heard the information. So to me, and it's interesting that research that we've done, it, it shows that the more um, kind of the more educated somebody is, the more judgmental, the more that being judgmental gets in the way. There's something in the you know, we're, we're trained through schooling to be right, to have a point of view, to have an opinion. And as a result, that can come across as being judgmental when in reality, we need to be curious and we need to be open to try to understand. And that can mean take putting judgment aside. So you started your own firm, Ignite 360. And I love how you explained that you didn't want to be an employee anymore, which yeah. I get. You want to kind of be your own boss and be able to make judgment calls. Can you talk to me about what that journey was like? Because obviously it's scary to go off on your own and not to have that corporation or benefits or paycheck coming in. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it was uh, just over 11 years ago. um, And it was actually the second time I'd been out on my own. I had gotten laid off um, back in 1999. Yeah, 98, 99. I got laid off from a job. It was in marketing communications firm. But it coincided with a friend and I were about to go out and we wanted to start our own small consulting practice for uh, small businesses. I was living in New York at the time and did that for about three years, but 9-11 happened, everything just kind of went upside down. And I thought that was time to feel the, as I call it, the warm embrace of a large corporation again. And so I went and worked at Kraft Foods for a couple of years and, you know, large corporation. Um, and that was great. And it, it served its purpose for me. And then we moved out here to San Francisco. I'd gotten another job, got laid off from that job a couple of years later. And, you know, Every time, like the universe keeps putting the same thing in front of you until you, you know, puts the same obstacle in front of you until you, until you learn it. the lesson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what the universe kept putting in front of me was you should be in insights and research. And I just wasn't understanding what it was until this later time. So I'd gotten trained to moderate. I was working as a contractor uh, for another firm and they needed to make me an employee. And we had a long back and forth about that. I was like, well, I'm okay being an employee, but I want to have equity because I work so hard and I'm helping grow and build something. I'd like to have that sort of payoff or reward from it. And they unfortunately weren't able to do that. So it was like, all right, well, show me the money. Let's put the contract in front of me and let's see, and, and we'll have a, a conversation about it. And I still remember the day getting the contract, opened it up on my laptop. And I had 
dodged looking at it for about two or three weeks. And the owner of the firm was like, hey, come on, I need, need we need to make this happen. So I'm in my kitchen uh, here in our house in San Francisco, and I'm looking at the contract and, you know, in the first sentence or two, and it says, you know, it's identifying the different parties and it had my name and then had the parenthetical quotation marks and all caps employee. And that's how I'm referred to in the rest of the contract. And every fiber of my being screamed out at me at that point and said, no, this is wrong. This isn't you. Don't do this. <laughs> and I kid you not, from top of my head to my feet, my every fiber of my being was hearing it. And it, it was at that point, I was like, okay, I, I have to listen to this. Like I'm getting this message so strongly that if I ignore this one, like the fire and brimstone could happen. <laughs> like it would be bad. So I took a deep breath and reached out to a lawyer and started to figure out what I needed to do and um, and what that whole process would look like. And you're absolutely right. Like I had never, I, you know, I had that practice early on and, you know, but it, it didn't last. It didn't work particularly well. We were making enough money to, to work from home and have a comfortable life, but it wasn't building much, um, you know, other than valuable experience in that moment. So now in the second go round, you know, I had to find out like, how does this work as an agency? Are you, you know, are clients bound like an ad agency to like bigger relationships at a senior level? Is this kind of project by project and relationship based? And turns out I asked a couple of clients that I was close to and they told me that, oh no, this is all relationship based. So if you go someplace, I'm going to want to work with you, not necessarily with a, a firm. So, okay, good to know. And, and that gave me a little more confidence to to take that step. And, you know, there's, there's so many things that we're uncertain of. Um, and you have to just, you have to face your fears. You have to like, just step into it. And in some cases, you know, I hired for my weaknesses too. I knew that I was going to suck at doing invoices and bookkeeping, and I wasn't going to like it. And I put it off. So, gee, there are people out there that really enjoy doing that type of work. So let's find them and bring them in. And so one of the first hires was a guy um, relatively recently out of um, undergrad, and he was hungry to, to get some work experience and majored in finance. And it's like, you know a lot more about this than I do, and let's get started. And, and that's kind of how the, the company got going. And, um, you know, my my advice to everybody, you have to, there's, a, there's always trade-offs. There's some really wonderful benefits to having your own practice or business, but there's also a lot of uncertainty. And, and so, you know, the things that you, you have to, you have to weigh out like pros and cons, like, as you mentioned, if you're working on the corporate side or just an established organization, you're going to have the more sense of stability of a paycheck and the benefits and and those things, although you know honestly we we see enough layoffs happening ever since you know for the last fifteen years that there isn't that same level of kind of certainty that there used to be I, I believe, but the flip side of it you know and and the thing that's been the hardest to get used to but over 11 years you do is the uncertainty of where's the next project going to come from. Cause we're on a, it's like project by project. We're not put on retainers. That's not how our industry uh, or our field works. 
Um, so there is that uncertainty of like, where is the next project going to come from? And, you know, we're working on a very short lead time. So you're just constantly reaching out to clients, checking in, trying to see who's got something going on. Um, so that financial kind of roller coaster is definitely, for me, I've found the biggest thing to, to adapt to. How many people now are at Ignite 360? There are 15, uh, 15 full-time employees. Wow. And I thank you, yeah. And then another 15 or so consultants that help out or contractors that help out in various various forms. So yeah, we're, we're, we were virtual when we started. I didn't really want to have an office um, location. I wanted to be able to work with people wherever they were. Um, so we've got people, we've got a cluster of folks in Minneapolis. We've got another cluster in New Jersey um, and other people spread out along the West Coast and, and you know, dotted around the landscape. So, No, that's amazing to see like how you've grown it through the years and especially with the pandemic. But I think now more than ever, we do need that insight. Uh, companies do need to understand what consumers are thinking where we're at and also companies need to have a better understanding as well absolutely um i don't know if you can speak on this but like that big shift in the great resignation and what people are looking for have you guys looked or done any projects around that yeah we we do work with some clients around um uh, diversity, inclusion, and belonging, which gets into empathy and, and you know, just kind of aware. I'm just looking up some of the data. Um, there's a lot of things happening um, right now where people, you know, the great resignation, part of what fueled that was the lack of empathy coming from um, organizations and, and management. Um, they weren't really supporting their their employees during the pandemic. And so now, as it's um, playing out, can't find that. I didn't download all the way. Um, so as it, as it's playing out, you know, people are getting these other opportunities, and they're like, "Well, I wasn't really feeling safe or secure or supported by my past organization. Therefore, I don't have the loyalty. Therefore, why not go try something else out?" Um, and you've seen a lot of people in 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 the white collar space and knowledge workers, you're seeing a lot of that shift happening there. And I believe actually, if you look in working class blue collar communities, you look at the unionization efforts at Apple stores, at Starbucks stores, at Trader Joe's, that's a similar reflection of that where they're, they're, those employees from the interviews I've, I've seen and heard from them, they are looking to have a living wage and, and work one job and not have to work three jobs to cobble together a, a, a life. And employers aren't getting that. Um, they're not really listening and having empathy with their employees. So as a result, the employees are like, well, hey, I can, if we unionize, that might help give us a, a leg up. Um, and it, it's, I find it ironic, but maybe it isn't in a grand sort of scheme of things. I, but I do find it somewhat ironic that, you know, it's Apple and Starbucks and Trader Joe's, which are, I kind of think of brands that are, you know, so progressive, progressive, exactly. And they're the, and maybe it's because of that, that those employees are feeling um, comfortable enough to say, hey, there's a, another way and a, a better way. It could also be my biggest pet peeve one of them is when people say one thing but act another so you see them all about 
whatever i'm just thinking pride just happened they pull out the rainbow flags all stuff but it's like okay you're not supporting me or how i want to be called or how i want to show up to work or these are just examples i'm not saying these companies are doing it but it's you say one thing but act another and i think now employees are starting to be like hey you just posted this on social media how you support women but yet there's less than 50% women in your like leadership right that's not supporting women Exactly. It's, it's gone so far beyond just um, it's, it's gone just, it's gone beyond just showing up. So changing your logo for social media with a flag, a rainbow flag that used to be a big thing. And I'm old enough to know, like there were so few companies doing it back in the early nineties when I came out that you jumped, I th- you know, I remember when absolute, and I think uh, it was either Bud or Miller, um, you know, so the alcohol spirits industry, they jumped on. I remember American Airlines was an early supporter of the community. And we were like, hallelujah, this is amazing. And we're being seen now, 20 plus years later, 30 years later, that's not enough. And and there was a lot on social media recently around rainbow washing. And I even did a I little. Was, I was just going to say, I'm thinking of that section in Target where they put the rainbow on every item possible. And I'm like, is that appropriate? Do we need a rainbow on that? Is that and, really representing what it's about? It, right. Or are you just giving me a convenient location to get some merch for yeah. my party or parade or whatever? Um, and and so it is important for companies to show up authentically for the marginalized communities, whether it's the LGBTQ community, whether it's for women, the Black community, Hispanic, people of color. Um, I people remember... Diverse- a company um, was sending out a holiday card. I'm Jewish. And for Hanukkah, they put the Torah on it saying happy Hanukkah. And I had to be like, you know, there is no Hanukkah in the Torah. Like no. one doesn't equate the other. Google, educate. And it was just such an eye-opening experience for me that now on the flip side, when I talk to individuals who come from a different background, race, um, you know, religion, I try to come prepared so I have a little bit more knowledge before having a conversation because I don't want to be that person's like, can you tell me this? And it's basic 101 where it's like, no, you could have Googled that. But if you want to get into a deeper conversation, I'm happy to have that. Right. And and uh, and it, it's just like an easy Google search. I mean, that's not even really doing research, but just Google it and yeah. you would understand something or reach out. There's so many organizations that would be happy to provide education on that. And and I think that's the challenge now for, for companies. You know, it's like you really need just taking pride as that example. You need to have programs supporting the community throughout the year. And it doesn't have to be a true marketing visibility thing, but you need to let the community know that you're there and you're supporting, you know, through your own employee programs, but also things that are reaching out into the community to let them know that, hey, we're here and we care. I Um, also think it shows a lot of where companies or CEOs of companies donate politically. You can't say you're pro, you know, pride and donate to individuals who are trying to strip rights. So I think that now employees are starting to become very much aware. 
And speaking of the the CEOs and the leaders, um, and I, I do not have the exact numbers, um, but Business Solver does, and I, I cite some of their work because it's really a great study called the State of Workplace Empathy. And their 2022 study just came out and it's something crazy like 75% of CEOs recognize that empathy is a skill that they need in today's environment. And yet 70% of those CEOs acknowledge that they're worried that they're going to be seen as weak if they practice empathy. And it's like, and this, this is the problem. This is why Brene Brown is like vulnerability, take off the armor. It's okay. And throughout my career, I would say that the best training I've ever had as a manager was at Lululemon because they led with empathy. They led with intentional listening, accountability, authenticity. And it's how do you have a conversation one-on-one? Every person who becomes a manager has to go through this training. And it was so empowering that now when I'm in situations in more of my professional career, I use those tools constantly. Yeah, it's it's fundamental. There's I give I'm fortunate to give a good number of talks on empathy and and its role in workplace and other areas. And there's a slide that I have that that shows uh, the headline is empathy enables the skills that let us be the people that we are or want to become. And if you think about it, like empathy, if you can be empathetic, that makes you better at communication, at collaboration, at persuasion, at ideation, problem solving, decision making, forgiveness, trust, compassion, and and many more. And if you can be stronger in those skills, then you will be a better leader or manager or team member or individual contributor, volunteer, family member, neighbor, parent, child, like all of it, all of it. And, and it's, it's a simple thing, but it's something that we've, we've lost sight of. We've lost the, you know, our muscles are atrophied as I've, I've written about. Can you talk to listeners about the five uh, steps to empathy? Yeah. So the five steps, which you you touched on earlier, the five steps are really, uh, we started looking at what was getting in people's way. So clients were hiring us to do these engagements where they'd go get some empathy with consumers. And, you know, of course they wanted it quick and easy and cheap. And so we came up with some tools that would do that. And no matter whether it's the quick, easy, cheap version, or it's the big Cadillac of of insights programs, we were just finding the client, not all of our clients, some were, but not all of our clients were really connecting with the consumer and they weren't coming away from the experience being empathetic. And I thought, well, what's going on here? And so we started to look at what was getting in their way. And and then also within ourselves, what gets in our way as we're interviewing so many people, and then looking at the different literature and, and consulting with some psychologists. And that's where we found these five steps. And the first one is dismantling your judgment. And that's the big thing that gets in most people's way in some form or another. And it's about being judgmental rather than making a judgment. It's about being judgmental, casting aspersion, saying the negative thing, as you mentioned, and thank you for acknowledging and being vulnerable that, you know, yeah, you were, you were being judgmental about why somebody chose to wear that outfit, (laughs) 
Well, that had nothing to do with the conversation you were having with them. And it's an example of being judgmental and how it gets in the way. The second one is asking good questions. And that's about asking open exploratory questions, um, not not assigning your own biases into those questions. As you mentioned, there's the chapter in the book called Peeling the Onion, um, taking the word why out of your con your daily uh, lexicon, find other words to get at why reframe those questions. And also using tell me more about that as a really easy probe to get somebody to open up. Third one is um, active listening. That's about being present. So cell phones off focused, using um, your ears and your eyes to hear what's going on and using your sixth sense and the things that you might pick up. And then there's integrating into understanding. And that's all about making room in your head that, you know, I might like chocolate ice cream, you may like vanilla, and that's okay. There's just different ways of looking at the world. And now let's be curious and ask questions and try to understand and make sense of it. Um, and then the last step is using solution imagination. So that's when you are actually stepping into the shoes of somebody else. You're using empathetic language. You are able to put yourself in their shoes and further the conversation or get to some sort of decision or outcome based on having empathy. So again, listeners, this can all be found in the book. I would recommend, I don't care if you're in marketing, I don't care if you're in business, like everyone should be reading this because I think it just gives such great advice and insight and how to approach any situation in a more empathetic way. Rob, I want to be really mindful of time, but one thing that I loved is you reached out to me because you heard my podcast with uh, Christine, the Eric Lay from Peloton. So I just want to give her a quick shout out for thank you for connecting us because through that conversation, you reached out and now here we are. And I got to read a book I might have never picked up, but definitely is going on the bookshelf and very happy to uh, share it out with others. Are you a big Peloton person? Um, yes, I absolutely I am. I've had my Peloton for coming up on two years. It was a pandemic purchase um, and I've really enjoyed it. I think I um, I discovered Christine couple months, maybe a month in, I was looking around for different artists. And I think I actually searched Kate Bush, who's like one of my all-time favorite artists, uh, musicians to see like, yeah, you because know, there's so many amazing different, you know, vocal or no vocal musical styles and, and mm-hmm. the different classes. I'm like, oh, well, somebody's got to do Kate Bush. Where is it? And Christine came up. And then I started noticing all these new wave rides that she did. And so we started taking those, check them out. And I just, I connected with her message and she also uses a lot of narrative storytelling. She, mm-hmm. She's so vulnerable and shares so much about herself and you learn by hearing her stories. And so I just, I connected with that. We're close in age, similar musical taste, and just, yeah, I, I'm a total, total fan. Um, I, was, I was recovering from COVID recently and she, you know, had been gone for a month. She got married and had um, national masters, I think in Indianapolis. And then all of a sudden she was back um, and she was going to do a class. I think she was subbing for somebody. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to like, I've got to ride this. I've just had COVID. I'm kind of over the symptoms, but I know it would be really bad to push hard, but just to be there and to be on that live class um, when her first one back was really 
like it was awesome and I, I stayed in zone one the entire time it was like a zone three five ride which oh, was I, like, I just took that one like yesterday yes, I took that yes, one yes. I was dying <laughs> like I was, going back to five I was like okay I can do this like everyone has our hands on our back talking to myself and then you know half the time it's okay like if I'm not in zone five or if I need to take it back to the lower end of zone three or whatever I'm feeling it's okay it's more important that you know what I showed up I showed up exactly and I am here for me yep you're there for you and it's where you are in that day and you know so on that day I was way down in zone one and I stayed there the whole time because I didn't want to relapse so it was all good but I got to be in the community and and that was really important too so Another instructor I love is Sam Yo. Yes. His music. Yes. He has this one class I keep playing over and over again because it starts with ABBA. Then he has like some more, you know, current pop, but then he does Cher and, and a Madonna song. And I like when I just like need to feel good, it's that I put that 30 minute class on and I think it's, um, yeah. you know, you just see me like jamming out in my own space. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. And um, yeah, Sam's been great. Um, I am so diehard Christine, like I will go find her stuff. And even like the other thing that I really respect and appreciate about her is, and some of the other instructors are doing it now too. There's like Broadway rides or classical music rides or jazz rides. And I remember doing, I think Christine did a Fantasia ride a few years, two years ago, maybe. And I found it. And it was like, oh my God, who thought I'd be listening to orchestral music and and sweating at the yeah. same time? She did a Yo-Yo Ma one. Yes. Did, yes. And I loved it. It was great. It, I did that too. It was awesome. Well, it I'm happy awesome. to know that secretly you and I are possibly riding at the same time somewhere in some universe together, listening to some good music. Well, if anyone wants to follow me on Peloton. Yeah. I am empathy activist, so you can you can find me, and I always welcome high fives. So I love it. The final three questions I ask every guest. The first question is: If you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Um, well, it has to be. I, I mentioned it in in one of the chapters in the book, um, and it comes from the movie Anti Mame, um, and that is message is to live. Life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death. Um, that I, my dad had me watch that movie when I was like nine or 10 years old and it just changed my life and how I viewed the world. Um, so that would definitely be my mantra. I love that one. That's a good one. I'm going to keep that one in mind. The second question is if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Um, um, I would relive my this is this will be interesting because it's not to do it differently, but it's just to experience it again. I would um, choose the day that my husband Charles and I had our commitment ceremony back in 2009 um, because there was, you know, it was just, it was amazing. We, we held it at Greens here in San Francisco, 150 friends and family, and there was just so much love in the room and absolutely yeah, loved that moment. I think that would be the day that I'd want to go back and and re-experience for the positive, um, all the positive feelings. I wouldn't change a thing. And then the last question is, 
if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? So, especially right now, it may end up sounding cliche, but I am a Kate Bush fan through and through. Um, start discovered her in college in 1988. A friend played um, "Running Up That Hill" actually, and I was hooked. And I sophomore year of college, I played that song on repeat. I was, you know, and and so for those that don't know, listeners that don't know, it's on currently a key pivotal point, plot point in Stranger Things in season four right now, where it's helping, literally helping one of the characters to survive. And that song helped me survive um, sophomore year of high of college, um, where I was going through. It, and it comes back to being gay and had an unrequited crush on a straight guy, and just the whole. Uh, um, you know, I wasn't out at that point. It was the beginning of me starting to come to terms with it, and um, and that song is ultimately about empathy and seeing somebody else's point of view and changing places to feel how I feel. Um, so it, it, it is my theme song. I was um, speaking at the American Library Association, uh, their convention in DC recently, and I had no idea, you know, I'm like, first time author, who am I? Who's going to show up for this thing? It was right after Roe got overturned, so I was pretty despondent about the state of the world. And I thought, you know, okay, my parents were with me. I thought, well, at least if my parents are there, that'll be fine. Um, but I played Kate Bush. I played running up that hill like three times in a row just to get myself into that headspace and open my channels up and like turn the magnet on. And and then a beautiful thing actually happened, maybe unrelated to my playing Kate Bush, but relevant to this, um, I ended up having a standing room only audience. There were so many people that were interested in hearing about empathy. And, you know, this was for librarians and how they could be help build empathy in their community. And it just, I mean, it moved me to tears at the time when I saw this crowd standing there wanting to hear and learn about empathy. And they were so engaged. Um, but I used Kate Bush and running up that hill to get me into that headspace. And so it is definitely my, my, that song to hype me up or my theme music. And I'm so excited. So many people have discovered her now, um, through stranger things. Well, I am so honored to add that to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist. I think the way you just described it really shows how much music means, but that song means to you even a few weeks ago so I'm happy to add that Rob this has been so lovely thank you so much I feel like we could talk for so much longer I hope next time I'm in San Francisco I can meet you in real life that would be um, amazing and thank you for all the work you do really it's so impressive and you're definitely moving the needle so thank you Oh, Mallory, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the show and, and to all the listeners um, for, for taking a few moments to hear more about empathy. 